It's good to see everybody. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Um, for our guests, we are currently in a series on the Ten Commandments, and today we'll be looking at the Eighth Commandment. Uh, I'm going to have the title of my message put up so you can, if you're taking notes, you can see that. The title of my message is, You Shall Not Steal. So is that up there? That makes you great. Okay. Now, we're going to focus on one verse today, chapter 20, verse 15, and so let's dive into that. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along as I read on the screen, you shall not steal. I have one main point today. You shall not steal. But of course, you're, you're telling me, Andy, so how does that, what does that mean for my life here living today? What does that mean? What do I do this week with that? You shall not steal. And you're saying, okay, Andy, that doesn't sound very New Testament. Where is the gospel in that? Well, because Jesus Christ died for your sins, you shall not steal. If I can have the band come up. <laughs> we'll just close the song. That's really all that needs to be said. But you've already committed to another half hour or so, and so I might as well fill it with something. Um, is it really that simple? Certainly, as Moses brought these ten foundational laws down from the holy mountain to God's people, it was meant to be that simple. These commandments are meant to be understood by everyone, from the smallest child to the greatest scholar. That's why they form the core curriculum for the education of the people of God throughout history. But as we've seen through this series, to limit the Ten Commandments to restrictions on what we shouldn't do is to miss much of their intrinsic value. As Mark Prater taught last week, whenever God says no to something, He is saying yes to something much better, and His restrictions are intended to protect the good gifts He has given us. Well said, Mark. That's how we should read all the commandments, including this eighth one. Now, Christians are generally good with the Eighth Commandment. Most of us think we can handle it pretty well. At least I got some, I got some issues with these other commandments, but at least I'm not stealing from anybody. I know that ain't right. And we all generally agree that stealing ain't right. Every society has laws against stealing. Did you know that even pirates have laws against stealing? Here's what the pirate code says. If an individual pirate defraud the company to the value of even one dollar in plate, jewels, or money, they shall be marooned. If any man rob another, he shall have his nose and ears split or slit and be put ashore, and I love this, well, he shall be sure to encounter hardships. 
The cultures around the people of Israel, when this law came down to them, allowed all kinds of barbaric acts, ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, but they were really tough on stealing. In fact, the punishments for stealing in the pagan cultures were more strict than even for the Jews. In most ancient cultures, being caught stealing was a capital offense. In the Jewish law, built on this commandment, the punishment was typically restitution and an additional interest payment, but no physical punishment or permanent penalty. So like us, the Jews would have probably heard the Eighth Commandment, taking a big breath and say, ah, no biggie, I got this one. But it really isn't that simple. First, we're not quite as down on stealing as we think. I mean, who isn't a fan of pirates? We are the pirates who don't do anything. We love pirates. What about Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves, or the Artful Dodger, or Bilbo Baggins, the burglar, or Han Solo, the smuggler, or Rocket the Raccoon, or Flynn Rider, or Yogi Bear? They're all thieves. We love them. Maybe we don't have as firm a moral line against stealing as we think. Maybe in reality, we think, Stealing? Is it wrong? Well, it depends. Now, now stealing's definitely wrong unless we're sticking it to the man. It's definitely wrong unless everyone else is doing it. it it's certainly wrong if, unless it's better for me to get it than the government to get it. Oh, stealing's definitely wrong unless it, it doesn't really hurt anybody. It's wrong unless nobody else wants that. It's wrong unless I, I can't afford to do without it. It's wrong unless nobody cares if I take it. It's wrong unless I deserve it. And it isn't just stuff that we steal. We can steal ideas from people. We can steal reputation from people. We can steal time from people. We can steal affection, attention, and credit from people. We can steal wages from our employers by not working according to the standards under which we were employed. We could take advantage of loopholes and systems and use them for our own benefit. Truth is, if we want something bad enough, we can find a reason and a way to steal it. So we really do need the Eighth Commandment, and we need it to be as stark and straightforward as it is. But is that all the Eighth Commandment does? Just draw a hard line that we can't cross? You shall not steal? No, the purpose of the Eighth Commandment, as it's applied through the Bible, is not just to keep people from stealing. The standard isn't, well, just, I'm a non-stealer. I'm okay, because I'm a non-thief. No. Purpose of the Eighth Commandment is to move people from being thieves 
to make them anti-thieves. An anti-thief is someone who lives a life that's the opposite of stealing. That's what we should desire for ourselves from the Eighth Commandment. So I'm going to offer you from how the whole Bible applies this Eighth Commandment three principles for becoming an anti-thief. Principle number one, the principle of ultimate ownership. I mentioned that the punishments for stealing were much worse in the pagan cultures around Israel than in Israel itself. Why? Why is that? Why did the law of God treat it less severely than the laws of the pagans? Well, we need to understand the pagan mindset at the time. What a pagan person possessed defined them. Those who had much were obviously favored by the gods. Those who had little were obviously cursed by the gods. To steal from another person their ox or their land or their riches was to rob them of what gave them value as a person. If I take your stuff, it's like taking your life. So the punishment for stealing from you is killing me. But the God of the Bible declares he owns everything. The psalmist says it, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. God is the owner of everything and everybody. If everything belongs to God, that includes us and everything we possess. We are not defined by what we own. We are defined by our relationship to the owner of everything. So in Israel, when somebody stole from somebody else, it didn't change their fundamental status. It was a crime that could be set right by giving back and compensating. No one's status before God, the thief or the one stolen from, nobody changed before God. You could set it right by compensation and maybe some extra for the trouble that the theft caused. The one exception is the case of man-stealing. Enslaving a free person against their will and treating them as property and not as persons. That was punishable by death. Because in that case, an image bearer of God was being robbed of the dignity and agency that came from God himself. Now, stealing is a big problem in every culture. It defrauds people, it can impoverish people, it erodes stability in society, it breeds distrust and violence and other crimes, but that's not why it's in the Ten Commandments. It's not in the Ten Commandments to make society run better. It's there because it breaks the First and Second Commandments. Leviticus 19 is a restatement of the law with commentary. 
And in verse 11, we read, you shall not steal and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. How does stealing profane the name of the Lord? Stealing declares that God is not the Lord of everything. He is not the owner of everything. I can place my hands on what I want and make it my own. In fact, by stealing, I am crowning myself as Lord over all I can acquire. But we're not lords over what we get or possess. We are at best borrowers of what is owned by God. Dave Fournier, interesting, posted something on social media this week that I read, and I thought, wow, this really speaks to this point. I asked him if I could share it with this. So this is a quote from Dave. Are you human? Then you're a borrower. This is because there is a creator, and all you are and all you have was given. This is a radically offensive notion, particularly to the American heart, which worships at the illusory altar of independence and the self-made person. Meet God now, meet Him later. All humans are borrowers, and we will give an account. Well said, David. We are not the lords of our stuff. All we have has been given to us by God. The principle of God's ownership means that he also must be the provider of what we have. That's what's behind the words of the prophet, prophet Malachi. Uh, if you've, you're familiar with this, Malachi chastises the Israelites for robbing God in not acknowledging as their provider by giving their first fruits to him as the law requires. He's not saying, you know what, you need, God needs his stuff back. Give him his stuff back. He's, he's missing some of his stuff. No, what they're saying is that it all belongs to God. Malachi's saying, it all belongs to God. You're not recognizing that by doing what God requires to demonstrate to yourself that you recognize that. You're not tithing. But he does not motivate the Israelites with the threat of punishment. He invites them to see how good a provider God really is. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You see, an anti-thief lives as if what we have comes from God. We are borrowers, or in the biblical language, stewards of what ultimately belongs to God. He gives us what we need, not always in the timing or in the amount we want, but He provides. He also withholds for our good. If you belong to God, He will give you all you need to live a life dependent on Him. That's the key. God is a provider, 
designing what you receive to make you dependent on Him. He isn't looking to make you independent. He isn't looking to make you self-satisfied. He isn't looking to make you say, well, God, thank you. I got all I need. I'm ready to go myself. No longer need you. No. God provides, and He's done this since the garden, all you need to be dependent on Him. Sin is declaring, I don't have need of you. I have all I want. So to be anti-thief, we must learn the joy of dependence on God. Principle number two, the principle of equity. When I use the term equity, I don't mean the growth in value of property over time. I'm talking about the issue of justice. Phil Riken and Kent Hughes speak to this. It is important to understand that the Eighth Commandment assumes a right of ownership. The Bible is not communistic. By saying, you shall not steal, God indicated that people have a right to their own private property. Otherwise, the whole concept of stealing would fail to make any sense. Only something that belongs to someone can be stolen from them. But the reason that anything belongs to anyone is because, like we just said, it comes first from God. And we do not have the right to take for ourselves what God has given to others. First of all, we don't have a right to take from God which belongs to Him. Second principle is we don't have a right to take from others what God has given them. Paul makes this point as he talks about how the commandments play into the New Testament. In Romans 13, 9, he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We must think about others when we think about our stuff, when we think about how we get what we get. This is a foundational justice principle in the Bible. My use of God's property is a social issue. John, Cal John Calvin's thought on the Eighth Commandment are remarkably relevant to our times on this point. He writes, this then is the rule of charity or love, that everyone's rights should be safely preserved and that none should do to another what he would not have done to himself. It follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those also who seek to gain from the loss of others and are mo more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. Okay, so... If you're looking for a good reason not to gamble, this is a good place to find it. Now, if you don't care what the Bible says about playing the lottery or going to the casino or having an account on one of those sports investment apps, you, you might want to shut your ears for a little bit. Or maybe not. Last week, somebody in Illinois won the National Mega Millions jackpot 
billion dollars. One ticket, one person. So where does all that money come from? You ever think about that? Where does the money come from? It's not coming from the government, thank God. There's enough going out from there to other things. It's not coming from Wall Street, though they could afford it. It's not coming from Elon Musk. Gambling of any kind is really pretty simple. There are three kinds of people needed for a successful game gambling operation. First thing you need is an occasional winner. If nobody wins at gambling, nobody will do it. All gambling systems are set up to have just enough winners to give the people the illusion that it's just a matter of time and the investment of my money before it's my turn to, to cash in. Then there's a second group, what I call the gamers. These are people who think they can beat the system. Gamers don't really need a big payoff. They just need to win enough to think they're smarter than the professionals who set the odds. The gaming, the gaming industry treats them like evangelists. They're the ones they want to enjoy the process and go out and tell other people about the process. They're the ones who want people to create groups to gamble in, to do different things. The, the gambling industry loves to create different ways to entice people into this so that there's always new people who are excited about the idea that I can beat the system. And then there's a third group, and those are the losers. Gambling is built on having so many losers that big payoffs are no big deal. It's the losers who pay the winners and support the gambling establishment. Now, we're not supposed to think about the losers. That kind of kills the buzz of gambling. Gambling wants to be a legit form of entertainment, a, a legit form of investment. Consider how this spin on the gambling industry by the CEO of the American Gaming Association on how gambling survived the pandemic. And it did. It's amazing how well gambling did during the pandemic. He says, our incredible rate of recovery sets us apart from others in the hospitality in sector, of which we are, of course, involved, and the broader economy. I'm really optimistic about where we're headed. I'm excited. That optimism is rooted in our industry's extraordinary recovery, topping $50 billion for the first time ever. Thinking, okay, the last two years, people quit their jobs. People didn't have any money. So what did they do? They gambled more. And that's growth. Fifty billion bucks. And that's the legal gambling industry. The illegal gambling industry is estimated to make up to 150 billion dollars. So here's some questions. How many people need to lose money for a few people to win money with that level of activity? How much money do gambling people need to literally flush down the toilet to feed a $200 billion economy? How many of them can afford to lose at that rate 
in order for other people to win? How many people are addicted to gambling but just haven't lost enough to face it yet? How many people have to steal in order to support a gambling addiction? Here's the point. For the Christian, we can't simply treat gambling like it's a fun diversion or a kind of investment. Gambling to work requires people to suffer. It's built into the system. If you lose at gambling, you suffer. If you win at gambling, your neighbor suffers. That's an Eighth Commandment problem. Calvin hits it hard. He says this, and he might as well be speaking to gambling right here. Since, therefore, the world boasts of vices as if they were virtues, and thus all freely excuse themselves in sin, God wipes away all this gloss when he pronounces all unjust means of gain to be so many thefts. In order that we may not be condemned as thieves by God, we must endeavor as far as possible that everyone should safely keep what he possesses and that our neighbor's advantage should be promoted no less than our own. Or the way Jesus put it more bluntly, do do to others as you would have them do to you. So, If the person next to you has been closing their ears up to this point, you can tell them we're done talking about gambling and they can start listening again. Okay, principle three. The Apostle Paul makes a remarkable statement in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. As he's addressing the church on how we should walk in our new life in Christ, he says, let the thief no longer steal but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's a crazy verse for me. He's talking to thieves in the church. And apparently he's not talking to people who one time back in their old days stole. He's talking about people who Sort of build a life around it. He's saying, hey, you guys who steal, let's do something else instead. It's present tense. So within the church of God, there are people who are actively stealing as a way to make a living. Does that blow your mind? Here's what it tells me. It tells me that God brings a lot of different kinds of people into his church. And we have to be taught how not to live according to the world in order to live according to Christ. Now Jesus himself set the precedent for that kind of church. Remember in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus comes to Jericho and the crowds are so big that one little man has to climb a tree to see him, Jesus notices him and calls him by name, Zacchaeus, hurry down and hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to start roping you into my church. Zacchaeus was an active swindler. He was a tax collector who used his office to steal from people. But Jesus reached this thief 
and that thief's heart was changed. Zacchaeus repented of his thieving ways. Behold, Lord, he says, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Here's the crazy thing. He says, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's obedience to the Eighth Commandment. That's putting himself back under the law by recompensing the people he stole from and adding to it a penalty for the effect it's had on them. That's what the Old Testament would have told him to do. But he doesn't stop there. And he says this. He says, half of my goods, this is important, if he's already given back all he's stolen, plus extra, then all he has left is what he legitimately owns. It's, it's his by right. And it's that portion that he says, I give half of it to the poor. That, my friends, is an anti-thief. Zacchaeus didn't just stop stealing. He didn't just give back what he stole with interest. He gave half his goods, what he had earned legally to the poor. That's what encountering Jesus Christ should do for us. You see, an anti-thief isn't someone who just keeps a clean ledger. It's not just being a non-thief. You don't just give your stuff. An anti-thief is someone who gives their lives. They say, Lord, use me. Lord, take all of me. Deploy me how you would will. Deal with me how you would will so that I might be poured out and given to others. Let me close by telling you a story of an anti-thief. Jorge Aguilar was a 10-year-old boy from El Salvador when he entered the country, United States, as a legal resident under his father. But he fell into a bad crowd as a teen and ended up part of a thieving ring in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The ring targeted churches and Jorge and his gang broke into 11 churches stealing thousands of dollars of equipment before they were caught. Now Jorge was scheming and he thought he could maybe get some court leniency by writing confessions to the churches. Only one church ever responded to his confession. And that pastor offered to meet with him in jail. When they met, the pastor confessed his own anger for what had been done, but told him that he forgave Jorge for stealing from God's people. And he used the opportunity to share the gospel. Jorge responded and professed faith in Christ. The pastor invited him to the church to confess before the congregation, which he was now happy to do. He confessed, and the church welcomed him into their midst, the thief into their midst, and he eventually became part of the community. But he still had 11 felony counts against him. Now, through good behavior and restitution, he was able to get the convictions removed from his record. He got a job, 
began to serve in the church, began to talk with his pastor about a sense of call in the ministry and maybe even a call to be a missionary back in his home country, which he had never returned to since he was 10. Now that vision became a reality in an unexpected way. Now due to a a conflicting law, even though his conviction was expunged, it was still counted against him by the Department of Immigration. So he lost his legal residence status and was placed in the county jail where he spent 10 months awaiting deportation. December 2011, he was removed from his cell, placed in handcuffs, and put on a plane on his way to a country he could barely remember. When he got there, Jorge lived with his mother who ran a bar. Now he hadn't been in a Hispanic culture since he was a small child and he had trouble adjusting to the culture and with the language. Eventually he was able to find a job and began to make something of a new life. He developed a heart for the poor and the lost, but it was hard for him. At a very low point, he was contacted by a Christian mission organization in El Salvador who had heard about him. And they connected with him and through that became a opportunity to be discipled by other believers. Jorge began to realize that it was God who arranged the deportation to get him into the mission of the gospel in El Salvador. Over time, he was ordained as a Baptist pastor and started a church. That church began meeting in the bar his mother owned, which she converted to a church after she came to Christ. Pastor Jorge Aguilar now travels throughout Central America sharing the good news about Jesus, giving his life away. Thieves. Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul is talking about thieves and swindlers, among other things. And he says, and such were some of you. That's a massive understatement. And such were all of you. We are all thieves. By nature, we steal God's glory. By nature, we rob God by living a life according to our own ways, by treating what He provides as if it's our own, by taking from other people that which really belongs to them. We are robbing God of his prerogative to be Lord and provider. The Paul goes on, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. How did that happen? Because Jesus Christ 
the Son of God, was crucified between two thieves. That's the glory of the Eighth Commandment for the redeemed. Amen.